Hey Kyle here. Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities begins with the famous line describing the year 1775 and the time of the French Revolution. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. If you go back and look at the year when Dickens wrote these words in 1859, God was doing mighty things. Take China, for example, where a religious awakening was taking place, or Northern Ireland, where a revival broke out. Consider the ministries of Charles Spurgeon or George Mueller's orphanages. But in 1859, it was also the year that On the Origin of Species was published. That year, Stuart Mill wrote an influential essay that weighed moral decisions and valued people based on their usefulness to society. Revivals were breaking out in one part of the world. Growing secularism and self-reliance were taking root in another. It's in times like these that God's words still ring true. We're in one part of the world, it seems to be descending into chaos, while in another part of the world, God is at work in powerful and mighty ways. And we return to Paul's progression in his letter to the church of Colossae, where he says that it's in Christ that they have the redemption of the forgiveness of sins in chapter 1, that they were once alienated and hostile in their minds because of their evil actions. That Jesus erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against them and opposed them. And he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And finally, they have been raised with Christ. And for a follower of Jesus, those truths are there for us as well. Paul's vision for the church in Colossae is that they will live as the kind of human they will become in eternity. We, right now, as Generations Church, should live in the present as the kind of human we will become. While marriage and parenting in the first century were challenged by the gospel, the final component of the household may be the most challenging to the social norms of their day and our day as well. If you're watching this and you aren't a follower of Jesus, as we look at today's passage, the very change that you hope to see and experience in the world begins with people who have differences of opinion, existing and maintaining relationships and pursuing Jesus together and watching that take full effect with love and forgiveness and bearing one another's burdens, which means when someone is hurting, others stand with them in solidarity. Today, the church has an opportunity to heed Paul's words and allow the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to transform our lives as individuals and then allow that individual transformation to take root in relationships in our church community 
and ultimately in society. In today's passage, Paul reshapes the dynamics of cultural power through Jesus. What we desire to see in our world first begins in the church. Let me stress Paul's emphasis here as he talks about slaves and masters and really a work ethic and a desire to work for the good and the type of person you are as you work, whether someone is watching or not watching. The emphasis that he is looking at and the the picture that he is trying to describe within the Greco-Roman household is one of socioeconomics and class differences. In fact, as Paul closes the letter, he will begin to name specific individuals who will be affected by what he has said and specifically what he says in these couple verses. There are good reasons to think that the concentration flows from Paul's concern to get Philemon a master, which a book of the Bible is written to, to embrace as a brother his slave Onesimus. What makes this so dicey as we look at this passage, as we attempt to look at this passage with fresh eyes, is just an honest and an open look at history of chattel slavery in our country, which subjugated an entire race to a lower socioeconomic class. However, the class struggle has often been a battle between black and white, but is a peach is a piece of a larger class structure in America. It can't simply be reduced to those two races. The class structure within the picture of our country, and ultimately as we look in our own community, includes those of Asian and Latino descent as well. So as we look at the term slaves, we got to understand that slavery was an integral part of the socio- social and economic world of the first century. Possibly one-third of the residents in Colossae would have been classified as slaves. Second, is likely that when we think in terms of slavery, we think of the forced subjugation of a certain race of people. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not racially based, but came from many different ethnic groups. Some people voluntarily even sold themselves into slavery because legal freedom wasn't always the best option. Third, there was no means to change the social structure and the wider society through legislation. Fourth, the early Christians did not understand their calling in these terms. They rejoiced in their identity as the people of the new realm inaugurated by God through Christ. They also knew that the old realm continued to exist. The the way society was would continue to exist and that it would exist until Christ returned in glory. No matter the culture around them, they were committed to be the way of Jesus by expressing kingdom values. And Paul summarized these values earlier in Colossians chapter 3. And Jesus expresses these in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So as we talk about character and priorities, as we have throughout the weeks here at Generations Church, go back and look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and you get a good picture of what it means to have the character and priorities of Jesus. And allow those to take root in your life and to change some of your perspective on how you see the world. So slavery wasn't always a bad thing in the first century. In some times, we try to equate it to economic employment. That parallel doesn't fit great 
as we try to bridge the gap from that first century Greco-Roman world to our day today. So we should just kind of take it as it is Paul addressing the Roman household and showing how the gospel transforms those relationships between people. And that's the underlying principle here is that when the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king takes shape in our heart and we see him as Lord, that changes our interactions with others in the midst of the society that we find ourselves in. And slaves are to obey their earthly masters. You'll see that this is a continuation of what he has encouraged wives and husbands to do, what he has encouraged children to do for parents, that the relationship should not be grounded in the ontology of the Roman Empire system of status and power, but in one's relationship to the, to the Lord, Jesus. We need to jump ahead slightly down to verse uh, 1 of Colossians chapter 4 and see that as we look at the in everything, Paul is going to challenge the masters to treat slaves right and fair. So as he looks to slaves and says, obey your masters in everything, it comes under the the realm of what are the character and priorities of Jesus? Are the masters going to ask you to do things that are right, fair, and good, or are they contrary to the ways of Jesus? The idea is consistent with the other household relationships. Jesus is the ultimate Lord. Provisions of disobedience are present only when it's contrary to Jesus, which is why it's so important, even as we navigate socioeconomic relationships today, that we go back and we look at the posture of Jesus and how he navigated those relationships and how he pointed people to who God is and what God has done on behalf of them. So, if your boss asks you to edit your time card, or to exaggerate on a report to receive an advantage. If you're invited into the conversation with another and it's slanderous, you must obey God rather than man. As this verse progresses, Paul addresses the temptation to reverse the dynamics of power via unethical means. That's that's why he says, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically. And even before that, he says, don't work while only being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. You are to be working for the Lord. You're not to be master pleasing or work for personal gain. Both violate serving God first. Often in our world today, work has a poor connotation. It's within your work that you point to God. The way in which you work communicates which master you serve. Not every job is glamorous. Not every task is easy or delightful. In some positions, you won't feel fulfilled or have a passion for the role that you find yourself in. Do not believe the myth that if you get out of this position, then everything will be better. What makes work meaningful is the direction and scope of your faith in the midst of the work, not your feelings about the work. If they both coincide, that's amazing. But remember who Paul is talking to. 
He is fully aware of the situation of slaves, and he calls them to faith in Christ that's evident in faithful work. To those who aren't working, maybe in today's society, as you hear this and we talk about work and having a work ethic unto Jesus, the principle of faith in Christ causes you to have an eternal perspective. Whatever work you do, whether that's parent, grandparent, helping a neighbor build a fence, the character communicated is representative of Christ. What you do, whenever you do, however you do it, must come back to the love and the grace and the justice and righteousness of Jesus. And you communicate that in the quality of work that you put forth. Because we are so fixed on the temporal, Paul's words may shock us as we look at verse 24. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Meaning your reward may not be, until, may not be received in, until your eternal inheritance. Maybe that's shocking for you. We have been indoctrinated that when we work for something, when we achieve something, when we do something, we should get likes, we should get instant applause. But what Paul is challenging those in positions of servitude, those who are working for another, to remember that doing good work, doing quality work, the way in which they work may not be rewarded until eternity. This would have actually been delightful for the slave to hear. They had no inheritance. They had no right to anything financially in the first century world. This pushes back against the narrative that we will see a victory right now. We might not see a victory until we see Jesus face to face. And I know that's not easy and that's not something we make us feel great. But the eternal perspective, the type of human we will become when we are with Jesus shapes the type of person we are now. And just as there is a general correlation between obedience and rewards, there's a correlation between wrongs and punishment. This pivotal verse speaks both to the slaves and to the masters. Like electricity, God does not play favorites. Stick your finger into the electrical current, stick your flow, stick your finger into the electrical flow of injustice, and judgment is the inevitable outcome. You will get shocked. You will get burned. Just as I explained that a slave had no legal right to an earthly inheritance, we see Paul challenge masters to be right and fair. Paul says, provide. And what he has in mind is the intentional establishment of conditions as well as the provision of something for someone. Masters must look at Jesus for their understanding. Some implications would include proper financial compensation and even handedness, that those are the minimal requirements for a master to provide for a slave, ceasing the exploitation, the exploitation of them financially, verbally, sexually. This may have meant preserving the family structure of slaves rather than selling children or the, the husband and the wife off to others 
in the first century. What the masters are challenged with is to look at their slaves as people who have the image of God within them. And John and I talked about that a couple weeks ago on the Midweek Podcast. Go back and look that up as, as we talk about what that means to have the image of God, which means there's inherent worth, value, and dignity in another human being. And so the masters are challenged to not see slaves as property, but as people. And this is an ever-present principle for our world today, to see others as people. Not as their, their positions or their priorities or what they post on social media, but simply to see people as people, loved, worth, dignity. And what that challenge is us to do is to have a level of fairness in play. And Paul adds that. He doesn't just say just right or just, but he adds fair, making it distributive in the sense of mutual benevolence of social and economic relations. It goes beyond the provision of adequate food, shelter, and clothing and moves into the realm of ensuring the equality before God in Christ is to be formed and manifested in each person. Every single person has equal access before God. God. Therefore, that should be evident within the relationships of slaves and masters. The implication is that you see those from another social class as equals and work for their benefit. First in the church, which will then confront the Greco-Roman Empire's exploitative systemic injustice and more benign world of status and honor. These masters and these slaves will run up against others who say, why are you doing this? Why would you treat your slave as a person? Why would you obey your master? Don't you know who they are and how they think of us as less? And in both cases, they say, I'm not simply serving myself or my master. I am serving Jesus because of Jesus changes relationships and it confronts the world of status and honor, the propensity to cast shame on others. And in fact, wipes away that shame and says that others are worthy of honor simply because they are people and because they are made in the image of God. So Paul clearly states that the different classes which were used as justifiable means to divide and dictate treatment are to be replaced with the justice and righteousness the master has first received through Christ. Re replaced with the justice and righteousness that the slave has first received through Christ. The way in which you live, how you may be have a temptation to divide and dictate treatment of others are to be replaced with the justice and righteousness that you have first received through Christ. So you're to see your identity not as a position in the pecking order. Your identity is received from God through faith in Jesus, not achieved through positions within the world or within 
pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting yourself to a position to where others won't scrutinize you because you have the power. No, you have the power within you through the Holy Spirit. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and that is received through faith in Jesus. And that begins to reshape how we interact with others. So your identity isn't rooted in the group or socioeconomic class you belong to. Be aware of what is influencing you so that you can take proper shape under the direction of King Jesus, not be subjugated to a lesser ruler. And this will push against the norms in today's culture, just as Paul's call to slaves and masters in that first century challenges the way in which they saw each other. We are challenged here to see each other first as those who are to be formed into Christ's likeness, as those who are loved and valuable. And as Paul says early in Colossians, that Christ is in all and is all. And so we as followers of Jesus, those who are watching this, know that it first begins with us to live that out within our church community and then communicate that to those who are not within our church community to demonstrate that to them because that is what the world is craving for. And in fact, John and I are going to talk about that in the in this midweek podcast, how this vision of seeing each other as uh, as not separated or distinguished or divide over socioeconomic class or different groups, we're going to talk about that, how the vision of the church pushes back against our tendency to divide in culture. So what does this mean? That when the world wants you to divide with another, find common ground in your identity in Christ. And if you're in dialogue with someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, find common ground so that you can then point them to Jesus. No matter your position, you will serve King Jesus. We must serve King Jesus first. So imagine what this might look like. It's almost unheard of. A group of people who are all different, refusing to be divided by social norms and instead being united because of Jesus. Right now, that's something that my soul craves. For us to lock arms with each other and say we refuse to be divided. We are surrendering to Jesus and we will allow him to lead us through these difficult and uncertain times. And above all, we will cling to the oneness we have in Jesus. Christ embodied can be seen in you when you've seen your allegiance to Christ first.